Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Aaron Velarde. Aaron is the founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead, an organization dedicated to training and empowering women to run for office. Vote Run Lead recently launched Run 51, an initiative to help women run for state legislatures. If you've been around for a while, you know there's periodic talk of a year of the woman in American politics. And that's normally a reference to women as voters, important block of voters. Well, we're definitely in a year of the woman in politics, but this time it's about women running for office, not merely voting for office. On the heels of an outpouring of sexual harassment allegations against lawmakers across the country, hundreds of women gathered in Minneapolis this weekend for an event to inspire change. The nonprofit Vote, Run, Lead led a three-day conference in downtown Minneapolis. They want to teach women from dozens of states how to run for office at the local, state, and federal levels. Exact words my husband said when we went to the House floor the first time. He said, where's all the women? Many of you are at the beginning of your professional, public, and political careers. You will have successes and setbacks, too. This loss hurts. But please, never stop believing that fighting for what's right is worth it. Hi, I'm Erin Velarde, the founder of Vote Run Lead, and I'm on a mission to transform every state legislature in America to 51% women's representation. Sorry, not sorry. Erin, thank you so much for being here. Please tell my listeners about Vote Run Lead and the work that you do there. Vote Run Lead is on a mission to make sure that women are the majority of our office holders in America. We've been doing this for nearly 20 years, really working to get women into every level of politics from school boards and city councils all the way up to Congress, because we know that when more women are in leadership, quite frankly, government is better. Yeah, everything is better. (laughs) Everything is better. (laughs) Everything is better. And tell me about the successes that you've had helping women run for office. Because if you started 20 years ago, that was the time when there were not a lot of women in elected roles. I started doing this work as an intern. So for the young women listening, my double major in college around gender studies and politics, my dad used to say, you know, what are you going to do with that? Turns out that this is going to be my life's work. But we started out together at an organization called the White House Project, where we were doing this work of organizing women on the ground and asking them to run for office and the sort of funding community in the nonprofit space and even the political community, that intersection, both of them were looking at us like, what are you doing? We're really trying to move rural women into power, move more women of color into power. And so everything really switched on the election of 2016. At that point, we had co-founded Vote Run Lead as a standalone organization. And by 2020, we had grown 400%. We had a 54% win rate that's comparable to these hard political programs. 71% of the women of color that ran in 2021, they won their races. So incredible. And most of the women are running for the state legislature, which is really unique to have over two thirds of the women in 2020 decided to run for the state legislature. And I think we're seeing today why these state legislatures are actually really critical. Let's talk a little bit about why they are critical. For me, I think that state legislatures are sort of the heart of our democracy. 
I think of like the presidency as the crown, Congress as the head following it. But the heart of our democracy is in our states. It's the laboratories. It's where marriage equality passed, right? State by state, where our neighbors are our elected officials. The women that we talk to on a regular basis could be our state representative. It's much closer to government. And that's actually at the state legislature where policy is made. So the local offices are often where policy gets implemented, where you're doing direct service. But if you really want to make laws and pass the bills that people's lives are governed by, you're talking about the state legislature. And we're seeing it now, dozens and dozens of abortion bans this year, post-2020, the voter rights suppression bills that are passing like crazy. That's all happening at our state legislature. And the federal government just moves too slowly to react to some of these really abysmal pieces of legislation that are being passed. And so if we want to create a more feminist future, if we want to create a more anti-racist future, if we want to create a pro-democracy future, I can't believe I have to say that, but then we need to get the racists out of the state legislatures, get the anti-democracy people out of the state legislature, because that actually is the place where this fight for America is happening. Yeah. And I always tell people that the state legislature is where the bills pass that impact your life directly. It's everything from gun violence prevention laws to a woman's right to choose to schools and budgets and all of those things that impact our lives on a daily basis. And it is so important. And it's so interesting to me that there is such a disconnect, it seems, and hopefully that is shifting between people who understand the importance of a presidential election and have no idea how important it is to educate yourself on the other things that you're voting for, the down-ballot candidates, the down-ballot issues. It's all so, so vital. So tell me how you feel the state of women in elected office is today in America. I'm still excited about the state of women in elected office. I think post-2016, we saw this beautiful wave of women pop their heads up from doing either activism or through a bit of anger or whatever it was. And they looked around at their government and they saw men who had been sitting in these offices for 20 plus years who, no lie, people would Google the legislature or Google their local city council person. And then they would say, this headshot of him is actually 15 years old. He doesn't even look like this anymore. Look, the fashion is from 92. So we were seeing this progress at the national level, but we've had a couple of really remarkable women at the national stage, but we didn't have that groundswell of a real diversity of women, both around women of color running for local office, around younger women running for local office, around queer and LGBT women running for local office. We didn't see that deep level of reflection. There's been an explosion of women candidates in 2018. A lot of that is happening on the Democratic side and in response to President Trump and critics' assertions that he's been disrespectful to women. It's brought women out to run for office to sort of even the scales a little bit. I got really excited after 2016. I got excited by the 2018 elections. And I'm still excited in 2020, although the progress has been, in some places it's still spiking and in some places it's a little flat. And that's why actually we are looking at this targeted approach. Every woman who wants to run for any office, we're still going to train you a thousand percent, but we're really trying to see with this new program focused on the legislature, can we accelerate the pace that we are actually not just asking for 5% increase or 10% increase? Can we accelerate the pace that we are fully in charge, that we are the majority? We're 51% of the population. We deserve nothing less than 51% of the leadership. So this experiment that we're running with this sort of focus on state ledge is because I want to prove that 
my excitement about women in politics should be your excitement about women in politics. Because when we see those majorities, women and girls do better, but men and boys also do better. We pass policy that betters everybody's life. It's so interesting to me because there's obviously a connection between 2016 and Trump being elected, professed pussy grabber, and the way in which women have stood up and rallied together in solidarity and decided, you know what, we're going to run for office, we're going to make a difference. And I wonder if we're going to look back on this time and think of Trump being the impetus for that, because I don't know about you, but I'm still a little traumatized. I can't even read an article about him. It almost feels like it never happened. And I don't know if any of my (laughs) listeners actually feel that way, but it feels like it was all just a dream, like we're going to wake up and it was some bad soap opera. And so I'm interested to see what history shows about this time. And women and their uprising. I think it's been really special to watch up until now. Why do you think women are so underrepresented in government? There's a lot of good research on this. One of the great pieces of research that's fairly recent says that the cost benefit for women and men of color to run for office was too high, that the costs were just higher than the benefits, at least perceived anyway. And so if you're not going to get the party support, if you're not the anointed one, if no one in your family ever talked to you about politics because you were a girl, right? If your family was struggling to meet basic ends, then it's unlikely that you are going to be thinking, hey, I think I want a political career. These things, your teacher doesn't think you're qualified for that kind of stuff. As we're looking at like lower income neighborhoods or low income households, you're not going to be in an environment where people are saying, hey, I really think your leadership skills are great, especially if you're a girl, especially if you're a girl of color. Those patterns in girls' lives, that teaches us to stay small, to not speak out. There's a plethora of good programs from Girls Inc. to all these other things that are kicking around. But that's a lot of unlearning that we have to do, that we have to do as adult women, that we have to relearn and teach girls that it's imperative, actually, that they keep that bossy, keep that leadership quality that we know is in every human being and don't let it get quietly snuffed out. So I think there's just that big sort of social component. I mean, this is why I fight so hard for the Equal Rights Amendment, because I feel like symbolically that says so much, not only to our young girls, but also to our young boys of what it means to have equal footing, equal representation in the Constitution. And makes it normal. It just makes it normal. Season two of Swing Left's How We Win is here. We have an incredible opportunity to fight for our democracy. We don't agonize, we organize. And we've got a lot of work to do. Subscribe right now on Apple and everywhere you get your pods for insight, action, and your reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is season two two of How We Win. to deal with so many other things if they're going to run, like childcare, for instance. How do you pay for childcare if you're running in a small district in Iowa, right? And you're like, I want to run. Your husband, let's say, works and you don't have the financial means for childcare to campaign. 
Do you think that child care should be paid for from campaign funds? Absolutely. And we're so proud of Luba Gretchen Shirley, who's an alum of Vote Run Lead over at Vote Mama, who's making this happen. And where that policy is getting passed is the state ledge, because the campaigns aren't really going to set up funds for you to do that. Independent expenditures. California is set to join other states, allowing candidates to use campaign funds to pay for child care. The state Senate approved a bill that would only cover child care expenses because the parents are running for office. The bill defines child care costs as professional daycare, babysitting, food and beverage, transportation, after-school programs, summer day camps, and preschool. The state assembly must approve the bill before it gets passed to the governor for his signature. This system was set up by and for men, right? And so there's just not aggressive thinking about how do we make this easier for women to step into power? And instead, they make us jump through a lot of different hoops to make that happen, child care being one of them. But it's also rethinking how we do that. Maybe it's time for us to be using technology to vote so that women who are distant from the capital or live in rural communities don't have to be away from their families for a really long time. Maybe a week at a time, only get to see their kids on the weekend kind of thing while the legislature is in session and instead they can zoom in, right? I think there's some ways to really reimagine how we're doing government to make sure that women can still be parents and not keep that full burden of parenthood, but that they can still have a more holistic life there. And hey, let's get these politicians in their districts. They're there so infrequently between having to be in D.C. And then I swear, I feel like more elected officials come to Los Angeles for fundraising events than they do in their (laughs) district. It's the craziest thing. So, yes, let's get them home and in their districts where they can actually see change happening or not see the change happening. What do you think the imbalance means for our country? The imbalance means that just the everyday stuff that we have to deal with becomes way too big of a hurdle, whether it's the pink tax and things around the products that women are using, whether it's our healthcare, whether it's the food that our kids are eating in schools, the expectations, all this invisible labor. I mean, look no further than the she session, which is a terrible name, but it's on point, right? The number of women that have dropped out, the number of women that have had to stay essential workers, predominantly women of color, essential workers having to stay in the labor force. The pandemic has shown us that the system that women are operating in is treating us terribly. And we have to get in there and fix it because it's 2021. We can no longer say, hey, these are great male allies. They're going to get in there and do what's right. It's like you had a few years to do this, I would say since the 90s and you haven't done it. So we've waited for you to pick up that full mantle of digging into the realities of women's lives. And the legislation has not shown where we see 30, 40, 60% like in Nevada of women in the legislature, you see the policies that affect our lives do better. That money goes into the economy. It's not some special class. We are workers. We're driving your bus. We're doing your hair. We're teaching your kids. We're running your corporations. We're starting our own small businesses at greater rates than anybody else. We are the engine behind the economy in the U.S. And it's just the layers and layers of how we have to operate. It's exhausting. I also think that women just are leaders from a place of service much more than men. And I feel like it is very easy, and I don't know if it's just because how they are hardwired, but it is very easy for men to get totally caught up, even if they got into politics for the right reason. They get totally caught up in this pattern of succeed no matter what and power 
And so they lead for their own selfish goals of power rather than leading from a place of compassion and empathy and service, leading from a place of service. I think that the more women run and the more diversity that's reflected in our government, whether it be state or national, it changes the complete dynamic of what, quote unquote, politics is. Tell us about Run 51. We launched Run 51 on June 5th, and we are really excited about experimenting in three bellwether states, Georgia, New York, and Minnesota, to see if we can move the state legislature from about 30% to 51% in just two election cycles. Run 51's vision is that all 50 states are run by women with state assemblies, at least 51% women representation. Run 51 is a surefire strategy to get us to female-led state legislatures in every state in America. It's part of a larger national campaign to take over all 50 states to make them 51% women's representation and truly build the democracy that we deserve. And we have hundreds of women who have already signed up. They're going to get coaching sessions on how to run for the legislature by women who have never lost a race. We have a 10 weeks of action that'll be in your inbox with our vote run lead, unusual how to do it, right? We think a little bit outside the box over here at VRL. And they're going to get a community of like-minded women who are at the stage that they're at, who are ready to support them and ready to donate money, ready to jump on their campaign, ready to make it happen. It's awesome. It gave me goosebumps while you were talking about it. And tell me again what states you're focusing on. We're focusing on Georgia, Minnesota, and New York. And they reflect the partisan diversity. Minnesota actually reflects nationally. They have a Senate that's red. They have a House that's blue. New York is a more traditionally blue state. Georgia is a traditionally red state. They have some of the key issues that we're talking about around women's health, about voter rights, about democracy. And we want to create a playbook. So by the time the two election cycles happen, we can replicate this in all 50 states. The goal is to really accelerate to go from one state in America, which is Nevada at 60% women, to 50 states having 51% women. Nevada, one of my mentors is Senator Spearman, who is just this incredible state senator who actually was responsible for bringing the Equal Rights Amendment to our consciousness again after so many years of it seeming like it was dead. She's incredible. And what they're doing is really amazing. It actually changes the halls of government. I remember going down to D.C. in 2018 when the women were getting sworn into Congress and just the number of women of color in the halls, the number of young women in the halls, the way the men were sort of backing up and putting their backs against the wall to let these groups of women go by. Those places are overwhelmingly white. They're overwhelmingly male. They're overwhelmingly old, to be honest. And the sort of power shakeup of having this physical presence of women in the building is changing everything. And that's really exciting because now when you're an intern at the Capitol, you don't actually have to worry about the wink and the nod from the yucky state senator who's been there for 40 years. Like there are some realities in our state capitals. We know we have harassment. We know we have a lot of the power struggles that we see play out in different sectors, different industries. The physical presence of having more women in those buildings is so fun. All of a sudden, government becomes cool and something you want to be a part of. And that exponential effect of inspiring more young girls to be in those halls later.
Why do you think so much more attention is paid to federal office? Do you think it's money? A lot of it, I think, is media. I mean, listen, if you said Joe Manchin's name more than five times in the last week, then you need to run for your state legislature because this focus on Joe Manchin and the filibuster, like, will H.R. 1 get passed in the Senate? Will H.R. 4 get passed in the Senate? If you are that much in tune with what's happening at the federal level, look at your state capitol because that's where you need to be. And you may have to move a district over and run against the guy that's been there for 30 years. You might like your state senator. You might like your state rep. But we are just inundated with this national fight. And so we do actually have a lot of information. We have high civic literacy when it comes to what's happening on the federal level, but we have low civic literacy when we're at the state level. So I would say dig in there, listen to the kind of boring C-SPAN-y stuff of your own state ledge. You can find all that online. I love C-SPAN. Yeah. You're going to watch those legislators and you're going to be like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> C-SPAN is like the ultimate reality TV. We know that there are many ways that women are excluded or discouraged from running. How will Run 51 overcome those obstacles? We have a beautiful peer-to-peer network at Vote Run Lead. And so we are asking you to nominate a woman who you think should run for the state legislature. And you can find that on the website. And what she will get is this amazing toolkit. She'll get this community. She'll get this one-on-one coaching opportunity this summer. We'll have sort of a Wednesday wisdom with women. I would love to have State Senator Spearman be one of those women because when we hear directly from women, it is so inspiring to see how they've carved their own path. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome State Senator Pat Spearman from Nevada. Good evening, Democrats. Good evening, Democrats. I am a veteran. I'm a minister. I'm an African-American. And I am a proud member of the LGBTQ community. When I joined our military in 1977, I lived in fear of being discharged. But today, LGBTQ members of the military can serve openly and proudly. When we hear directly from women, it is so inspiring to see how they've carved their own path and the impact that women have made. So we're going to really push, of course, on all of our channels. Thank you for having us on. This is really about getting our friends, our mom, our neighbors to consider this office. Because if we can get you just thinking about it, the good thing about Run Lead is we're magical at getting you to say yes. And so we just need you to sort of touch and nudge your friend to go sign them up, put their email address in, and they're going to get the support, this really holistic support to make a run in 2022, to make a run in 2024. It's awesome. What will you define success as for Run 51? This is my founder energy, but I want like 55%. <laughs> my team, as we talk to the funders and the philanthropic community, the expectation is, can we move the needle 10%? And what do we learn from that? Can we move the needle 15%? What are we learning? And I think that is the right frame, right? So I want to know what it is going to take to accelerate. So part of this is an experiment, especially to dig in and make these investments in Georgia, Minnesota, and New York. But I want nothing short of the majority. I know what it takes to fix this country, and it takes feminist, reform-minded, anti-racist women to step up, to run for office, and to just start writing the legislation that we know is right and true. And this isn't partisan either. 
I'm old enough to remember a time when center-right women were standing beside us in a lot of these issues. We have to make sure that we are moving our sisters on the right away from the benefits of patriarchy and the benefits of white supremacy, which they think they are benefiting from or have a cost-benefit analysis that is keeping them out of the sisterhood. And we have to hold them accountable and ourselves accountable when we maybe fray from including as many women as we can. And it's complicated and it's tough, but we need all of us because these issues, like, the recession, our lives, this young woman in Texas who just pulled out of her bra that she does not have consent about her own life because of the anti-abortion legislation in Texas, that affects all of us. And we know what's right. We know what's right. And when we link arms and when we get through the messy and when we have these difficult conversations, I think as a women's movement, the whole country benefits. I agree. And people talk about bipartisan cooperation all the time, but maybe the way to achieve that is to support more GOP women to run for office, too. Let's be clear. Not this GOP. This GOP is anti-democratic. I'm almost seeing that GOP women who know that Marjorie Taylor Greene is whatever she is can primary her and say, you know what? This is not our party. I'm trying to build a world where feminist, anti-racist, reform-minded women can also be Republicans. Like those two things cannot, we cannot have a political party in the country that is not that, right? So the frame of putting that on sort of the women's movement and then like slicing us by bipartisanship, no, thank you. I'm not going to engage in that way. It's going to take a lot of work and it's not for everybody. And this could be the work of different subsets of the women's movement for sure. And I also don't think it's the center, right? I think right now centering the lives of women of color, the lives of marginalized women is where we should be at as a movement, but there's got to be a place for how we're engaging because the cost benefit ratio, look at what just happened to Liz Cheney. Just like that, it's over. The House Republican Conference had a voice vote. That means no recorded total and has ousted Liz Cheney from her number three position within the conference. There will not know uh, the vote totals here. It's uh, something of a, one could say, an elegant way to avoid embarrassing either the leadership or Cheney with vote totals. She spoke to cameras briefly afterwards, uh, remarks similar to what she said in front of the conference. Uh, and now we expect to see her continue on with what she has promised to do which is try to lead the Republican Party away from Donald Trump. But she will be doing it from the outside, no longer a member of House leadership officially. I don't agree with her values. I do agree with her stance. And they didn't just cut her off on the knees. They cut her off at the neck. If I'm looking up and I'm a center-right woman that is low taxes, small government, I don't care that you're small government. I want an equitable way that you are dividing those small government resources. I don't care that you're low tax. I want an equitable way that you are taxing folks. There's an implementation, but right now, small government and low tax and that kind of stuff, that's all buzzwords for the benefits of mostly white folks. So we've got to have these tough conversations and we've got to take this frame of bipartisanship or R&D off of it. Also, most of us are somewhere in the middle. Most of us are not that identified with a political party. And at a state level, you don't have that like really Democrat or really Republican tie. You can really carve out your own space. I think part of the reason is, is it's a privilege to worry about partisan politics. Most people have to get food on the table and really don't care where it comes from. They just need help. So tell my listeners how they can support Vote Run Lead's work and in particular Run 51. So head over to VoteRunLead.org. Check it out. Do your research. Check out who our alumni are. Make sure that you want to be a part of this organization and be a part of our community. And then I encourage you to sign up. 
and you are going to get this beautiful package of resources we've been putting together. And also check out the YouTube page. We have amazing inspirational women from all over the country who, if you're thinking about it, if you're not ready to sort of put your email address in there just yet, are really going to help you think about where you fit in the civic landscape. We want to be your political home. We want to help, right? We're here to support because we know that you're the right person for the job. We know that you're enough. And part of the work that we do at Vote Run Lead is what makes us different from some of these other kind of campaign schools is I'm not bringing you in and turning you into a political robot and giving you like you have to fundraise $250,000. Our mantra is run as you are, that you have the skills, you have the talent, and I'll help you finesse that public speech. I'll help you really think differently about your fundraising plan. But what you have inside this inclination to even if you're perking up at this podcast, that that fire in your belly, we're going to help you make sure that that becomes a real force. Finally, what gives you hope? I just had a baby. She's mm. 10 weeks old. Congratulations. And thanks. And so I think even though I am completely exhausted. <laughs> that doesn't go away, by the way. Mine are <laughs> I, nine and I heard six. Seven. And... Oh, okay. I heard seven was the... <laughs> oh, no. It's just a different set of problems that keep you up at night. <laughs> Not my husband. My husband sleeps through anything. But I'm telling you, yeah, it does not get easier. It's just different, but not easier. I look at my mom who didn't go to school, didn't go to college, and the generational change and the opportunities that my daughters are going to have. And the pace of that change has been remarkable. And I feel... Like it's my responsibility and also my hope that that is going to happen. That pace of change is just going to get faster and faster for my girls and for my nephews. And like I said, I believe that what benefits girls and women greatly benefits men and boys. And that gives me hope. Well, Erin Bellardi, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. What's happening in America right now is women are continuing to look up, look at our democracy and see that the wrong people are in office, that the system wasn't built for us or by us. What we're interested in is solving the problems that affect our lives and our community. Historically, women have always been motivated to run for public office because they saw problems in their communities and no one was fixing them. If women were in charge, There are no limits on the possibilities. I have said it a million times. When women lead, the world changes. I know that scares a lot of men who laughably think of themselves as alphas. Well, buckle up, buttercup, because women are running and winning in unprecedented numbers, and we are taking our rightful place in office. You can just go hide in your man caves now. It is astounding to me that anyone at all can still think women don't have what it takes to lead. I hate that existing power structures even convince some women that we're not equipped to hold office. That's why the work of organizations like Vote Run Lead is so critical to breaking those systems and rebuilding them with something that looks a lot more like America and a lot less like a group of white men telling the rest of us what to do. America is not free and equal if we are not able to take a seat at the table. I believe in America. I believe in freedom. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure women have what we need to lead. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. <laughs>